I mean, that's basically a marathon. Um, you know one thing for sure. Jesus is not leading his disciples to this place just randomly. It's not like they just found themselves in Caesarea Philippi one day. No, Jesus, he took his disciples specifically there. Um, secondly, you need to know that there's no Jewish settlements up there. It's, it was outside of the borders of Israel at that time. And so this isn't like friendly ground, so to speak. This is, you know, there's danger here in some respects. And the third thing you need to know about this place, it was a remarkably pagan place. A remarkably pagan place. You see, Caesarea Philippi, it's located at the foot of Mount Hermon. And there's a, a natural spring there, um, which still flows to this very day. But in Jesus' day, water came gushing out of that cave at a fairly high volume. And, and, and it came from deep within the earth, from the underground. It's actually one of the main headwaters of the Jordan River. Now, in a desert area, you need to know the gift of water, it, it, it's so significant. And, and, and it's so important in order to be able to survive. And so not only was this place a very lush area, a place of great natural beauty, it was a very strategic place because this, is, you know, this was the headwaters of what watered a lot of the, uh, the grounds of, of Israel. So people thought of it as a very special place. In fact, I think I have a picture of it. It's up already. Uh, this is called the Gates of Hades. The Gates of Hades in Caesarea Philippi. Now, as I said, it was a very pagan place, a place of worship. In earlier centuries, it's where the god Baal was worshipped um, because they thought he brought water up from the earth. He was a fertility god. Um, but by the time of Jesus, Baal wasn't so much worshipped there anymore, um, but other gods actually began to be worshipped. And in particular, um, a god named Pan Okay, and this is a picture of Pan. Next picture. Okay, this is a picture of Pan. And um, there was a, a worship place built there to this particular god. He's, he's a very interesting god, kind of half goat and half god. Goat feet and goat legs with goat horns. Um, now, he's kind of a nasty character. Um, goats have, have never been considered creatures of high moral character, and Pan is associated with goats, all right? And in Jesus' time, there were acts of worship that were performed there, um, particularly sexual acts that were so unspeakable um, and, and, and abhorrent that normal Israelites, um, especially rabbis, would never go there. They would just never go there. That the place was so offensive to Israel that Ray Vanderlaan, um, who actually alerted me to a lot of this stuff, um, says there was actually an ancient rabbinic saying that said, when Messiah comes, the gates of Caesarea Philippi, the gates of Hades, will collapse. It was such a depraved place. Such a depraved place. The, the reason for this worship is that, that followers of Pan believed that he was a God who would inspire confusion, chaos, and disorder in people. And especially in your enemies, if you got him on your side. So if you had enemies, right, you wanted to sacrifice, you wanted to get Pan to, to be on your team, so to speak, right? The, the concept of the God Pan is, 
is reflected in the Greek language, which of course has filtered into our language. Uh, consider the word panic, right? You know, having a, a feeling, a spirit of disorder or internal chaos. Uh, panic comes from the god Pan or pandemonium, right? Same concept. A spirit of confusion and disorder on a larger scale. Or, or pantyhose, which has caused so much grief for so many women. All of the... No, actually, I just made that one up. But some of you were buying it for just a few moments. Okay, so Pan's worshipped in Caesarea Philippi. And this is where Jesus brings his disciples. And it's in this place, right, the gates of Hades, that he has a question for them. Now, let's read the text from Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? And let's just pause for a moment here in the story um, imagine you are one of Jesus' disciples in this place. And Jesus asks this question, right? It's like, it's like the final question on Jeopardy, right? The pressure is on. And most of them are, are shuffling and, and looking down at their feet. I mean, everybody had an answer to the first question, you know? Um, I mean, they understood that Jesus was some, somebody significant. I mean, Jesus obviously had power. Jesus obviously had authority in teaching, but Jesus asked this poignant question. Who do you say that I am? But then Peter pipes up, finally. Verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. By the way, um, you need to know that this is the first time in the Gospels that Jesus uses the term church. He reveals to his disciples at this time that he is in the process of building a new community. A community radically different from the kingdoms of this world. What's more, he also reveals that they're going to have a central role in this new community. In fact, he's going to give them what? Well, the keys of the kingdom. Now, now this, is, this is hugely significant, and I'm going to get to this in just a few moments. But, but first, I want you to notice something else. Notice in this moment that Simon Peter gets it right. He gets it right. Jesus asks the tough question, and Peter responds with the right answer. Um, there's, a, there's a wonderful translation of this passage in the Hawaiian pidgin version of the Bible. You may probably didn't even know that this version actually exists, but this is what he was saying. Simon Peter says, You the Christ guy, the special guy Godwin sent. The God who alive for real kind, you his boy. All right? I like that. That was just, it's too good not to share. And Jesus calls him blessed as a result of his answer. 
and he, and he gives him a new name. He renames him Peter, Petros, right, which means rock. And he says, on this rock, this rocky guy here in his confession, I will build my church. I mean, imagine how this must have made Peter feel, right? He was, yeah, I got it right. I got an A in missiology, right? But then, interestingly, the whole conversation turns on a dime when Jesus starts to talk about the ways of the kingdom, how the kingdom is going to unfold, how the kingdom operates, and especially what it's going to cost him, Jesus, to bring the kingdom near. And he's talking about, the, about suffering. He's talking about the cross. And in the same sense, he's talking about eventually what it will cost the disciples who follow Jesus to follow him on this same path. So listen now, Matthew 18, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, now here's where, where Peter steps in again. I mean, he probably says to all the other disciples, listen, guys, you know, after all, I just got an A on missiology, so... I'm on this, I'm on this, I'll handle this. And so Peter took Jesus aside, verse 22, and he begins to re rebuke Jesus, right? He says, never, Lord, never. Th this shall never happen to you. And then look what happens in verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now tell me, how do you go from first to worst, right? In, in a matter of moments. How do you go from, on the one hand, Jesus calling you, you blessed and giving you a new name. You're now Rocky. What a great name, right? And, and Jesus is giving you the keys of the kingdom, right? Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, how, how does something like this happen? So what I want you to notice is something really important. See, Jesus' main vehicle on earth to express the kingdom of God is going to be the church. But, now listen carefully, Jesus' main problem on earth in expressing the kingdom of God is going to be the church. Are you with me? Why? Because the church is always going to be made up of people like Peter. People who have the right information about Jesus and the kingdom, but who, like in this moment, don't actually want to live in the kingdom. You see, in this moment, Peter doesn't understand the ways of the kingdom, that the power, grace, and truth of the kingdom only come through what? Through sacrificial love. He believes some of the essential truths about the kingdom, that Jesus is the centerpiece of it. He gets that. You demand Jesus, right? But he doesn't actually want to follow Jesus in how the kingdom gets incarnated in this world. And that is through renouncing power and embracing suffering love. Listen, friends, Jesus doesn't want people whose main goal and identity is that they give him the right religious answers. 
Those are the people who are going to kill him. He doesn't want answer givers. He wants life givers. And this is what, what Peter is going to have to learn. You know, there, there's, there's such a poignant moment that Jesus has with Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. P- Peter has betrayed Jesus in a terrible way. Not once, by three, but three times. Um, but in this moment, Jesus is going to restore Peter. And he asks him another very simple question. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? You see, opposite to this question is this. Do you love yourself? Do you trust me, Jesus is saying to Peter? Or do you trust yourself? Because you see, this has been Peter's problem up to this point. Now, Peter responds in a beautiful way. He responds three times. Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. And it's only then that Jesus says, feed my lambs. And what he means by that is, now you're ready to do work in the kingdom. Now you're ready to build the church. Now you're ready to lead, Peter. Because here's the thing that you've got to understand. What qualifies you for leadership in my church is not your capacity to wield power. That's what goes on in the corridors of every other institution in this world. That's what goes on in government. That's what goes on in business, right? Jesus is saying, to lead the church, to lead this organization that's going to reflect my love for Peter, for people, Peter, you need to understand that it's not what you're going to do for me, but it's what I'm going to do if you submit your heart and life to me through you. Peter, the one thing that qualifies you for ministry is your love for me and that you trust me as the king of the kingdom, that you submit to me and follow me. Now, all that brings me to the keys of the kingdom. So you might be asking this morning, okay, Pastor Bruce, just what are the keys of the kingdom? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, you need to know that this is a hotly contested um, theological conversation. And different folks have different answers. Um, Some people believe that the keys of the kingdom are the sacraments, right? The Lord's Supper, baptism. Some people say it's the ability to establish doctrinal truths, right? Or the content of the Bible, because the church, and especially the leadership of the church, would later on decide, you know, which uh, writings were going to be in the Bibles and which Bible and which ones weren't. Some say it has to do with Pentecost and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Some say it has to do with the inclusion of, of, of Gentiles, non-Jews um, in the covenant, right? I mean, he's giving them the keys of the kingdom, a key to unlock the hearts of, of folks um, who have a Jewish background, but then a key to unlock the hearts of, of those who are non-Jewish, who are Gentiles. Now, whatever the case, all right, it's clear that what Jesus has in mind here is the unique role of the church, the role that the church will play in the kingdom. And he's talking specifically about its authority to speak on behalf of Jesus, especially, I believe, to be a guardian of the gospel. And in this regard, I want to give you three images this morning of what 
Jesus envisioned the church to be. This, this imperfect but critically important institution that Jesus inaugurated. First of all, Jesus envisioned the church to be an embassy. Now, um, as most of you know, an embassy serves as an outpost in a foreign nation. The embassy itself is not considered territory of the nation it resides in, but territory of the nation the embassy represents, right? So just to help you understand this, if a fire broke out in the Canadian embassy in Brazil today, the Brazilian fire department would not be allowed to enter the embassy to put the fire out without the permission of the Canadian ambassador, okay? When an embassy is attacked, right, and that has happened in the course of history, it's considered an, an attack on the nation represented by the embassy itself. Now, within an embassy is an ambassador. He, he resides in the foreign land and often depends upon its services for food, utilities, and so forth. But as much as he might like that land, his citizenship and his ultimate allegiance are to his home country. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to build an embassy on earth. And it's going to be the church. Now, now remember, he's, he's not saying this on home turf, right? He's not saying this in Jerusalem. He's not saying this beside the Sea of Galilee where he grew up, where it's relatively safe. No, he's saying this in Caesarea Philippi. And that's the very point, Right? He's saying in a place that was so pagan that ordinary rabbis wouldn't even think about visiting it, let alone taking their disciples there. And in this place, he's saying, on this most pagan ground, this is where I'm going to build the church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is saying, I'm setting up an outpost in enemy territory for the purpose of reaching people that desperately need to know about my love, my grace, and my truth. And you know, a lot of people, they often they get this image wrong, right? When they think about the gates that Jesus is talking about, they, they think of the church as if, as if the church is locked up behind gates, Right? And, and that we, our job is just to huddle together and build our own little goofy, you know, in, you know, little subculture with our own little organizations and institutions and activities while the forces of darkness and, and secularism and, or whatever pound on the walls, right? But that's not the image that Jesus is using at all. The image he's using here is, is look around, he's saying. There are all these people. They're enslaved by ignorance, by fear, by confusion, by sin. I mean, why would anybody give in to all these ridiculous sexual practices and think that they're going to have an influence on, on, the, on the future or on, on the outcome of the battle? So many people are living these lives of darkness, right? All these people living with a sense of panic. And he is saying, I have no intention of standing idly by while all these well, this happens to the people that I love. I'm going after them. I'm taking down the gates of hell. I have the keys. I got them from my dad. Now, who wants to go with me? That's what Jesus is saying. You see how powerful that is? 
So what's Jesus' plan, right? To take down the gates of Hades. How's he going to do this? Well, not with an army. Not by force. Not by legislation. But by extending love and grace. And so what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I'm going to break down the gates of hell by descending into hell. And he did. I'm going to defeat the power of hatred by enduring more in my love that hatred can dole out. I will defeat death by dying on the cross and then rising again. And he did. Unbelievable. At the rock of the gods, at the gates of Haiti. Now, this is the second part. I'm going to build a new community. I'm going to build my church. It's going to be an outpost, an embassy, built on the power of my love. And I'm giving you the assignment of being the ambassadors in that embassy. I mean, there's, I don't know if you, if you get the power of this, that, that, that the amazing thing that Jesus is saying and, and doing here. Now, you might ask, where's the gates of Hades for you and me? Here in 2019, I'll tell you where. It's wherever injustice holds sway. It's wherever children are neglected or abused. It's wherever sexual activity outside of marriage just becomes standard operating procedure. It's wherever greed gets glorified and applauded and admired. It's wherever sin gets excused or where judgmentalism carries the day or whether God's word is unknown or where God's truth is unheeded or where God's love is unexpressed. There are the gates of hell. And all of us in this room know places like that in this world. And God, through Jesus, is calling each one of us to become gate crashers. To break through their gates. How? By building an embassy of love. By building an embassy of grace. By building an embassy of truth-telling by building the church, an institution founded by Jesus and commissioned by Jesus and empowered by Jesus. And you are the ambassadors. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. The Apostle Paul writes, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. You, my friends, are an ambassador. In fact, all of us here are ambassadors, ambassadors for Jesus, ambassadors for the kingdom of God. And our witness needs to be so compelling that people of every nation will want to come in saying, I want to emigrate to that community and find myself in that community that's represented by this embassy. Because what I see here is something else. It's not like any other institution in this world. There's love here. There's grace here. There's acceptance here. There's truth-telling here. I want to be part. All right, let's move on to the second image. The church is to be an embassy of love, but it's also supposed to be a demonstration plot. A demonstration plot. I grew up um, for a good part of my life in Lacombe, Alberta. And um, one of the things that you may not know about Lacombe is that, is that it's home to Lacombe Research Center. 
which basically researches all kinds of ways to grow crops more efficiently. And one of my best friends, um, when I lived there, was Bob Dornenball, and his father was a researcher um, at the research center. And in fact, he had a house right on the research center. So whenever I would go over to Bob's house, we would end up playing in the midst of all these, you know, these demonstration plots that the research center was growing. And it was really interesting because as we gallivanted around destroying things, um, we often noticed that one plot, and usually they were about half acre in size, right? One plot would be doing really well, right? And another pot plot would be doing not so well. I mean, one plot was just going gangbusters, and another plot you're thinking, is anything even coming up here? And occasionally, the difference was so stark um, that you know, you kind of wonder what kind of super fertilizer are they using over here? What kind of super genetics has altered all of this, right? Now, when it comes to the church, it is called, it is called to be a demonstration plot, a demonstrational community, if you will, of what life is supposed to look like in the kingdom of Jesus. Now, you just signed up for Christmas, Christmas with style. At least I hope you did. Now, why did you do that? Well, because this is how the church operates. This is how the church is meant to function. It's meant to demonstrate, you know, what, what a community of love looks like. Now, we, it's, it's important for us to come here on Sunday mornings and sit in these chairs and to listen to teaching. That's, that's an important part of, of, of being motivated to, to be part of this community and sent by this community. And, and it's great for us to get together. But, but every once in a while as a church, we have to say, no, listen, what we're, what we're doing is we're not just, we don't just want to talk about it. We want to show it. We want to be it. Right? And last year when we did Christmas with Style, it was amazing some of the letters that we got. But here's one thing that was just unequivocal in, in almost all of the responses. Because so many of the women, you know why they, what they asked? They asked, why are you doing this? Like what, what kind of weird community are you? That you would just take people that you don't know from Adam... And you would, you would spend all these resources on them. And you would love them to this extent. Right? And whatever their beliefs were, religiously, and some of them had some faith, and some of them didn't. I talked to a lot of the women through the course of the day. Um, they, they were shaking their heads at the end of the day. Saying, I don't know what you guys are, but that's, that's pretty amazing. I had I, one, one response as I recall it, um, this one woman said, she said, thank you for this day. It meant so much to me because it restored my faith in humanity. It restored my faith and I realized that maybe not all the people in my life were out to hurt me, right? So, so that's, that's what the church is supposed to be and not just once a year when it comes to Christmas with style but, but, but on all kinds of different ways we are called to be this, this community of grace that's why when there's a natural disaster the church is the first one to, to step in and help out at the denomination that we, we belong to um, I was at class this meeting a little over a week ago um, this is just 2017 okay statistics from 2017 and this is just our denomination in uh, Classes Alberta North, okay, which encompasses, say, everything north of Red Deer and all the churches that are there. 
um, to an organization called World Renew, which is the first organization on the ground whenever there's a natural disaster. You know how much our little denomination gave? Eight and a half million dollars. All right. Now, why did they do that? Because we believe as a church that where there's, when there's people that are hurting, when there's people that are, are in trouble, we are called to love them. We are called to be the first to step up and say, what can we do? How can we help? Right? Jesus said in another place in the Gospels, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You, he said, are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And now listen to these words. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, do we ever do this perfectly? No. No. And that's why as, as a church, we have to, it's so important for us to be humble. You know, to, not, to not get all uppity about, about what we're doing or, or patting ourselves on the back, right? But listen, we can, we can certainly be influential. People can see in the church a community of love, an inclusive community, a positive community, a community of service, a community of hope. And that's the kind of church that we want to be. See, when the church is functioning well, you know what it is? It's kind of like a foretaste of the community to come. You know, the community that, that will last into eternity, right? What people taste here is a little foretaste of that. Let's, let's move on to the final uh, image of what Jesus envisioned the church to be, and it's this. A missional society. A missional society. There's, um, there's a little museum on Nantucket Island, on the coast of Massachusetts. That's hard to say, say that 10 times really fast. In the United States, and it's devoted to a volunteer organization that was formed centuries ago, almost 300 years ago. Now in those days, travel by sea was extremely dangerous. And given the storms on the Atlantic and the real rocky coasts um, on the shoreline of Massachusetts, Many, many lives were lost, and many real, real close to shore, within a mile or less of land. In fact, that's often where most shipwrecks take place. And, and a group of people who lived on that island couldn't stand to think about all these people going down so close to them, right? So they went into the, the life-saving business. They banded together to form what was originally called the Humane Society. Now, of course, we associate that name today with, with uh, care for animals, right? But originally, it was about saving human beings, right? And what they did is they built little huts that dotted the shore. And, and if you go to that museum, you can still see one of them today. And they built these huts um, containing boats and containing rescue equipment, and they, they sometimes called them huts of refuge. Huts of refuge. And people were posted in those huts all the time. And their job was just to keep watching the sea. And any time a ship went down, the word would go out. And when it did, they would devote everything to rescue, right? They would risk themselves to save every life that they could. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, somebody was watching. Everyone was willing they did it for no money. They did not do it for recognition. They did it just because they prized 
human life. And to remind them how seriously they took this task and what was at stake, they adopted a motto. And I love this motto. It's this, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. I mean, that's a catchy little recruiting slogan, isn't it? Right? You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Now, you wouldn't think that a motto like that, right, or a recruiting campaign like that would would entice a whole lot of people into joining, but it did. But it did. Now listen, when Jesus was here, he put a rescue effort in the hands of a small group of volunteers who would love the people of God, the people that God loved so much that they would adopt a similar motto. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go to the ends of the earth and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. It's called the church. This organization, this society that is tasked with helping people find their way back to shore. You know, um, Sharon and I fostered for many years, and uh, one of the images that they used to help us understand what fostering was, was um, they said, listen, all of these children that are in care, basically what's happening to them is they're drowning. It's like if you're on the shore, it's like they're out in the current, and, and one by one they're getting pulled out further and further out to sea, and and if they get pulled out far enough, they're, gonna, they're just going to drown. And your job as foster parents is not to fix every one of their problems because you, you can't, possibly. Oftentimes, some of these kids are, uh, there's just so much that has happened in their lives that, that, that it, it's, it's, it's difficult. But they said, well, your job is, your, your job is, to, is to go out there and to grab them and to pull them as close as you can into shore. With all your might, just to go out and, and, and do your best job to rescue them so that maybe, maybe they can find their feet on solid ground again and maybe their lives can get restarted. And that always reminded me, whenever fostering got tough, and it got tough sometimes, that that was our job. You have to go out. Why? Because people that God loves are drowning. And that's true for a whole bunch of people in, in your life. People are drowning in debt. People are drowning in, 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 in abusive situations. People are, are drowning in, in, in alcohol. People are drowning in, in all kinds of, you know all the different ways that people can drown. They're drowning. Jesus established this missional society, the church, to go out and to rescue drowning people. You know, I want to push you a little bit this morning on this because it's so easy to give up on, on helping drowning people. In fact, you need to know this organization, the Humane Society, eventually gave way to the U.S. Coast Guard. And they didn't go out anymore. And uh, they, they still had meetings. They still got together. They still shared, you know, rescue stories. But they didn't go out anymore. They didn't save people anymore. 
they, they kind of lost their initial passion. And, and in that regard, I want to ask you, when's the last time you invited somebody to church? When's the last time that you really looked around in your life and you said, you know what, there's people out there in my life that are, are drowning and do I care? Am I asking them? Am I inviting them? You know, maybe it's, it's inviting them to the boys' ministry that's starting on Wednesday, right? Maybe there's, there's some young boys that, 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 that are living near you that are going through a very, very difficult time and but they don't know about this ministry that's getting started, not unless somebody invites them. Maybe you know a family that's going through a tough time or, or a single mom who, who has some kids and, and they would really benefit from a program like this. So we see this happening on Wednesday. We say, well, that's great. I'm glad my church is doing something good for the community. Wonderful. It doesn't matter if nobody knows. You have to go out. That's what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28. You have to go out. Because there's a whole world out there that's drowning. And I'm sending you, imperfect you, to go out. And it's going to cost you. And it's going to be challenging. And it, you're going to find yourself sometimes at the gates of Hades. But listen, remember what I told you. Wherever that institution gets built... Wherever you're brave enough to do that, there the gates of Hades will get broken down. There, amazing things will begin to happen. And as we become that kind of missional society, as we gain our passion, maybe gain it back a little bit, God can do something incredible. He really can. Walls can, can, can fall. Strongholds can get broken, Right? You know, um, I got a call from Ryan Petey, who's leading our latest church plant um, in Fort Saskatchewan. It just opened a little bit more than a month ago. And, uh, and he said, you know what? It was our highest attended service ever. Um, God is doing incredible things. And as I got off the phone, I thought, you know, I'm so glad for church planting because it just, it brings so much energy. And... I want to see some more of that energy in this place. I don't want to lose that energy for, for growing a community, a missional community that will love people. Jesus' vision was to use the church, ordinary people like you and me, to change the world. Will you go? Let's pray. Father, um, every single person in this room is, is aware just how imperfect they are. And so um, we're all aware that this church will never be a perfect church. But Lord, it's not about, it's not about us being perfect. You taught Peter that so many years ago. It's not about what we can do for you. It's not about our strength. It's not about our acumen. It's not about our smarts. It's about our willingness to trust you and to love you and to be the conduit of your grace and love to this broken world. Lord, inspire us again this morning to be the institution that you imagined we would be, that you spoke about to the disciples 
when you said, on this rock, in this pagan place, in this broken world, I'm going to build a new community, a community of love and grace, and against it, the gates of Hades haven't got a chance. Father, we're grateful to be part of this church and re-inspire us and re-energize us to to be people who go out and who care about other people and try to help drowning people find a place on the shore again. Inspire us. Fill us with your spirit and send us out. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.